you uh, locate your seat. Let's go ahead and locate a copy of God's Word. I need you to begin to track down two different uh, texts for me. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Psalm 78. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Psalm 78. And just kind of hold your place in both. Stick something there. Flip back and forth. Or I'll read the text as we go and reference those texts. So you can just park in one and you'll be fine. If you, um, as always, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some underneath the chair somewhere uh, around you. If not, we apologize. There's probably more out in the lobby at the kiosk. And if you happen to need a copy of God's Word or know someone who would receive one, that's our gift to you. You will not be stopped at the door uh, on the way out and charged with stealing. Uh, that is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it, particularly if someone would read it with you. Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78. Uh, Feel free to use the table of contents. Um, we're at a bit of a transitional moment uh, today. You heard some of it if you heard the announcements. Um, our lives and our church calendar in many ways uh, mimics, follows the cultural, uh, we'll just call it the educational calendar. Uh, that's not bad. I would say that that is a fairly neutral issue. For us specifically, we are transitioning today. We're, we're in between the end of our July break where we, we, we sort of stop everything, pause everything outside of, of this gathering, all the other regular activities to sort of take a breath. Uh, and now we're one Sunday away uh, from everything kicking back off. Uh, and when things kick off next week, for the most part, all of that will go through June of next year. OK, so with some breaks over the uh, holidays. So most of what starts will go through June of next year. Uh, but before we get to the content of today, I just want to prep you for what is to come, at least in the fall, in terms of this moment, the preaching moment. Uh, Kyle hit on it earlier, but you may not have heard uh, the announcements. So uh, next week starts a three week emphasis on missions. Uh, we'll be devoting both the sermons and the core training time before this, the hour before this, to give attention to reminding ourselves of the mission that God has entrusted to us. A couple of unique features, again, that Kyle uh, mentioned. Uh, one, Alex Sisson, who uh, he and his family are here for about six months with us from Papua New Guinea. He's going to lead a two-week course next week and then skip a week, a week after that, a two-week course training us some on cross-cultural ministry. And then in the middle of that, two weeks from today, uh, Reverend Al Jackson, Pastor Al Jackson, former pastor of Lakeview Baptist in Auburn, bit of a missions legend in terms of how he has shepherded the church to care deeply about the mission of God for a long time. He's going to be here and he's going to tackle core training uh, and he's going to preach. Okay, so it's it's. Alex in core training, and then Al Jackson, and then Alex, and then sprinkled in there, you get myself and Burnett. So we're not exactly the, the highlights of that. Um, so heavy emphasis on missions over the next three weeks, and we'll talk about why next week. Like, why are we, why are we hitting on that? So you, you'll get that next week during uh, the sermon. So hope to see all of you at 9 a.m. Uh, in core training, and then again in this gathering. Uh, then following that emphasis, so following that, starting September 4th, we're going to dive into the book of Ecclesiastes, okay, Ecclesiastes, and that will take us through the end or up to the end of November, and then we'll observe Advent season as we do on a regular basis around here. So missions, Ecclesiastes, uh, Advent. Any questions on that, please let us know, and I think we'll have those little Bible journals for Ecclesiastes for you. I think we're getting those. Uh, we've gotten good reviews on that today. 
All right, for today, many of you were part of the meetings this morning that caused us to start just a little bit uh, late. We were talking about there was a, a teacher's meeting and a parent's meeting in regards to what we do among the next generation, as we call it here, how we care about and train the next generation at PBC. Uh, giving, given those meetings and the amount of people resources devoted to that aspect of what we do, and given the amount of babies and children and youth the Lord has entrusted to us relative to our size, I thought it would be good to give attention during this time to at least part of what God has to say in his word about training up the next generation. Uh, we don't give such attention, devote such time to training the next generation because that's the way it's always been done. Or we just think it's a good idea. Or we just need to figure out a way to keep the kids occupied for a period of time. We do what we do in the way we do it because God has spoken. I hope that's true of everything that we do. We do what we do in the way we do it because God has spoken. Because God has revealed to us in his word what's important to him. And even if we don't have every aspect or every detail of how we should carry something out, particularly in the area of next generation, we have principles, we have truths, we have guidance, we have examples, we have a lot to work with in regards to what God cares about. And as I hope you'll see by the time we finish today, God cares deeply about training the next generation. Now, before we get to our text, plural for today, let me say this, there There's an emphasis in Scripture on the parental responsibility of passing the faith along, of imparting the faith to the next generation. You'll see that in the two texts before us. You see it clearly in texts like Ephesians 6, and you see it in so many others. Both Scripture and reality highlight that parents have the greatest spiritual influence on their children. I like to put it this way. Nicole and I have unique responsibility for our kids that you don't have. But at the same time, and this is the point I'm trying to make right now, at the same time, the church has a shared responsibility for the next generation in our midst. So parents have a unique responsibility. The church has a shared responsibility. And my aim is not to preach a sermon to try to prove that point. I just want to make sure that everyone tunes into the sermon and go, well, my kids are out of the house or I don't have kids or I don't have kids yet or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm or I'm single. No, this is for everyone. The church. Think about it. The church is called corporately to make disciples of all nations. I think the next generation would obviously fall under that very large umbrella. We don't simply ignore disciple making among the next generation because they have parents. The church is also called to neighbor love. That's another big umbrella. Our kids would would fall in the category of being our neighbors in one way. And lastly, the church, and, and this is probably one of the more important ones, the church is called to be the pillar and buttress of truth, as Paul described it to Timothy. We've been given a deposit. Something has been entrusted to us, something that we are to protect, to preserve and to propagate. And one of the more obvious ways that we do that is by ensuring that the next generation knows about the deposit and they know their responsibility with the the deposit. Okay, so if we're a pillar and buttress of truth, but yet we don't take that truth and pass it on, then it it just sits and then we die and, and then that's it. So we will not only fail at being what we are, the pillar and buttress of truth, guardians of a deposit, but we will seek to exist 
without training the next generation. I'm making this initial point just to say we're all involved. That's that's what not there's not one member of this church, not one person in this room, not involved in this aspect of ministry. Parents don't farm out disciple making to the church and the church doesn't just assume and just put it all in the hands of the parents. Parents don't need to farm out disciple making of their kids and the church doesn't need to just ignore it because somebody has a parent. This is a it's a partnership. Okay. We're tag teaming this thing. We're co-discipling the next generation and we're equipping one another to be able to do this. You think about Ephesians four, that in part pastors, teachers, all of these gifts of the church exist to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I think training the next disciple is certainly a work of ministry. So we're equipping one another to do that. So we all need to heed what God has to say in this. We all need to ask ourselves, how are we upholding Honoring, following what God has said when it comes to both our privilege and our responsibility toward the next generation. How am I as a parent upholding this privilege and responsibility? How am I as a church member upholding my shared responsibility? So think about it. As a parent, how am I upholding my unique responsibility that I have with my kids? And as a church member, how am I upholding my shared responsibility that I have with everybody's kids? For the next generation in this room, okay? We're talking a lot about you today. That doesn't mean you tune out, okay? It'd be a good time for you to tune in and go, why do they do what they do? Why do my parents do X, Y, and Z? Why do we do these things when we get to church? Why does it, some of it seem odd, or if it is odd to you, but it's, this would be a good time for you to understand why we go about this. And the main point, in case you fall asleep or start coloring or do something else in this moment, the main point is God has told us, and we care deeply about what God has told us to do. Okay. So everybody tune in. I think that covers everyone. So with that, let's dive in. I got a lot of points that I want to cover uh, quickly. Uh, the outline is long, but hopefully there's, there's some brevity in the points. By the way, I really appreciate all of you who sent me a picture of the Methodist church sign that said, uh, long sermons kill people. Isn't that what it said? Short sermons save people. I'm sorry. I had it backwards. Short sermons save people. I don't know what you were trying to communicate. But I appreciate the text messages and the pictures. David Couch. All right. All right. The goal is to do an overview this morning, not to be exhaustive. So let's let's read it. Psalm. We'll go. We'll do Psalm 78 first verses one through eight. And then we'll jump over and read Deuteronomy six, four through nine. So this is the word of our God. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keeping his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful in God or faithful to God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, verse 4 through 9. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. All right. Four sections this morning, three points under each. I'll give you the sections. The rest you'll get as you go. So we're going to look first at the posture of trainers. So we're going to play off this idea of training, the posture of trainers. Second, the content of training. Third, the process for training. And fourth, the purpose of training. Posture, content, process, purpose. Three points under each of those. First section you see on the screens there, the posture of trainers. Interestingly enough, each of these texts sort of starts with a focus on the trainers. Okay? Those that do the training and not on the next generation that is to be trained. If you were looking for what is step one, okay, give me the how to. What is step one for training the next generation? Step one would start with the trainers. Not the trainees, meaning it starts with the posture or you see this language of heart of the parents specifically and then the church generally or God's people generally, meaning if we could just bring it into this room, it starts with the adults. Okay, starts with the adults in this room and there's a ton here, but I want to quickly point out three aspects of the posture of this posture of trainers that we see in either both of these texts or one of these texts. Okay. Again, you don't have to flip back and forth. You can, but I'll read the sections that I'm referencing as we go. First, we see obedient adoration, obedient adoration. So this section in Deuteronomy six is known as the Shema. If you want fuller treatment of of this particular part, David Burnett preached a sermon almost a year ago to the day. It's on our website. Go on our sermons. You can get a little more uh, detail on this text. So Shema, that name's comes from the first word. It means uh, hear there. There's playing off of that. You need to listen. You need to take heed here. And we've also gone through this here at PBC, but we've walked through Exodus, which includes the Ten Commandments, and we've covered the greatest commandment in the New Testament. So the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is what we just read here in verse five. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul and might. And Jesus says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments in the New Testament are a summation of the Ten Commandments. So that's how it works. Jesus is taking it, summing it up. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Second, love your neighbor. If you think about it, that encompasses all of the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments are a summation of the law as a whole. So it's just being broken down into something a little more succinct. And to sort of make the point quickly here, the Shema is about what I'm calling obedient adoration. The Shema is about recognition of the uniqueness and exclusiveness of God. And it's about our obedience to him in light of who he is. To hear is tantamount to obey. Think about it. What do you say to your kids when it doesn't seem like they're listening to you and you've told them to do something? Did you hear me? It's 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 rhetorical question or it's a question. It really means, why are you not obeying me? I'm checking your ears because I gave you a command and it seems like you didn't you didn't hear. Did you hear means 
Why are you not obeying? So it's, it's tantamount to obey. And according to what Moses says here, Moses is the author, this obedience to God is expressed through love. To love God is to obey God. Okay? To obey God is to love God. Those things are tied together. Jesus said what? If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. And you will do so according to this with every aspect and element of your being. Loving the Lord with heart, soul, and might leaves nothing out. This is whole lives devoted to the Lord. Thoughts, desires, skills, talents, times, possessions, relationships, and on and on and on. Everything is devoted to the Lord. The most important posture, the key to what it means to be a faithful trainer of the next generation. The key is obedient adoration. The key is loving the Lord with all that you are. Training. So we'll just put it this way. Simplify it. Because that, that sounds ambiguous. Okay? Training the next generation starts with your relationship with God. That's simply what I'm saying. To sort of call a time out here and make sure we're clear, if it's not obvious, we are talking about believers. We're talking about believers training children. And one does not have a relationship, one is not a believer without faith in Jesus Christ. Obedient adoration comes through faithful reception of the gospel. And by the gospel, we just sing it if you didn't realize it over and over The gospel is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of sinful human beings. There's only one route that we take to get to obedient adoration of God, and that's through Jesus. Jesus says it himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to embrace verse 5 without knowing Romans 3, without knowing Galatians, without knowing Ephesians 2. So if you're here and you have any concern about the state of the next generation, that care and that concern has to start with where your relationship with God is, which only comes through Jesus. So where do you stand in that regard? That's where it's starting blocks to training the next generation. It starts with a relationship with God. I don't know where you are. I want all of you to listen to everything else I'm going to say today. But if you're unclear on this part and where you stand, just put a pen right there. Listen to everything else. Maybe it will clarify some things. And let's come back and and revisit that after the gathering. So the first aspect of the posture of the trainer is obedient adoration. Second aspect, persistent maturation or persistent growth. Okay, maturation, Uh, maturation, kids, that's to mature, to grow. It's not just about knowing God. It's about growing in God. The ongoing, ever increasing maturation of the trainer is also key in training the next generation. So in Deuteronomy, you've got Moses restating the law. If you jump back up to verse one, he's talking about teaching the people God's commandments and he wants them to do them and carry them out. Verse six talks about what he's commanded them and how it should be on their hearts. Psalm 78, which is partly a reflection of Deuteronomy 6, you have the psalmist teaching the people. He starts off, we read it, by telling them to listen, give ear to my teaching. There's ongoing instruction of God's people who would be doing the training. 
He's reminding them of what they've been taught already. The, the Christian life is really a series of being taught something and then being reminded of that. And then being taught something and being reminded of. You ever thought about that? Why do we seemingly say the same thing over and over and over? If you don't realize that we're saying the same thing over and over, because that's just because you're forgetting. And that's why we're saying it over and over again. We really just keep rehashing the same things. That's a biblical pattern. God knows we're forgetful, rebellious, broken. Our minds don't work. We stray. We get off course. So he just keeps reminding us. Persistent maturation is a key aspect of those that trains. It's impossible to know everything at once. It's impossible to know everything. You'd be God if you knew everything. But it's impossible to know even a lot of stuff all at once. If you are a disciple of Christ, which every believer is, you are a disciple. Okay, one piece of being a disciple means you're a lifelong learner. Okay, you're a light, you're not a convert just Okay, I'm converted to Christ and that's it. You are a lifelong student. You are attached to Jesus, following him and continually learning about him, God, you, the world. Lifelong learner. You never stop learning, never stop growing, never stop searching, never stop digging, never stop studying. And if you are a parent or if you've given yourself to training the next generation, then you know You fully understand your need to continue to grow and mature because kids go through different stages, face different things. I feel like there are moments in parenting that I have it and then they get a year older and I don't have it anymore and I have to figure it out again. They develop and they grow and they face more complex situations or the culture changes and presents more complex circumstances. We're continually having to say, how does this same truth that I know apply differently to this situation? Here's the succinct but important point I'm trying to make here. No matter if you are a parent or just a Christian with the privilege of investing in the next generation, what the kids in our homes and the kids in this church need most is a version of you that is ever increasing in Christ likeness. All of these kids need versions of us that are ever increasing in Christ likeness. They need parents and Christians that are being transformed continually more and more into the image of Christ. If you're breathing, you're not done. You're not done. Think about it like this. The next time every one of you sits down to pray or stands up to pray or just prays. Next time you study your word, you open up your word, you're going to do some devotional time, you're going to dive in. Next time you walk into this gathering, the next time you attend a core training class, the next time you show up to a midweek Bible study, the next time you meet with your D group, the next time you do whatever in terms of ministry or anything it may be. I want this thought to enter all of our minds. The kids at PBC need me to lean into this and grow through this. Find a few faces in this room of the kids among us. And every time you step into core training or midweek or this gathering or open up your Bible, maybe the Lord will bring that kid to mind and say, they need me. They need me to lean into this. And grow through this. They need my ever increasing Christ likeness. Kids at PBC need my holiness. Last aspect of the posture of the trainer. Humble recognition. Humble recognition. 
Both um, Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 78 paint a sobering picture of past failures. You keep reading Psalm 78, it just unpacks that a lot, of how the generations before them did not uphold these instructions. They didn't uphold what's being discussed. Psalm 78 in particular says that you should do this, train the next generation, and not forget the works and commandments of God and be like the previous generation. And it describes them this way, whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. In the midst of this command to train the next generation, God wants his people to examine themselves and remind themselves that they have a propensity to repeat history. God wants us to learn from the past and remind us that we have a great track record of blowing it. And this is important. He's not helping us to see this for the sake of us dwelling on how miserable we are or to be fearful that we might fail again. The ultimate point is not to focus on our potential failure, but to see his consistent faithfulness. The fact that God is restating these things and recounting the past and pointing toward the future, that is a testimony of his patience and his long-suffering and his grace. This is a reminder to us that we are not that great in all that we do and all that we are. It's a reminder to us that there is a hero in this story and it's not us. It is God who extends his grace over and over and over again. The posture of the trainer includes humble recognition of both our tendency to fail, but his consistency to fulfill. Okay, that's the posture of the trainer. Next, let's look at the content of training, the content of training. So move from the trainer to those being trained. What is the content? So the whole message here is about training the next generation, but I've not actually showed you that in the text. I assume you picked up on it when we read verse seven says that God's people are to teach them which we'll get to what them is in the next section. But we're to teach them to our children goes on to say that we are to talk about them in all aspects of life. Psalm 78 verse 4 says that we will not hide them from the children, but tell the coming generation. Verse 5 in Psalm 78 says fathers are commanded to teach their children. It just keeps going. We bring in Ephesians 6 and kids are to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's clear training is to take place. According to Deuteronomy 6 here, that we are to do it diligently, that kids are to be diligently taught. And the focus of this point is on the content. Okay, I want to focus on the content, on the what of teaching. The next point will be on the how. But I think it's good to know the what before we get to the how. So three aspects of content, three components that make up the content of the training. First, we're to teach doctrine. We're to teach doctrine. Okay. We're, we're, we are not just gathering together and hoarding our kids in age grade groups and, and talking about this is how you be good members of society. If you'll just be moral beings, then society will be a lot better and everybody out there will be happy with us if we can just teach you good manners and to love people. Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their Children, Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God and you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all these statutes 
and commandments. We're seeing clearly here that what is to be taught is the word, the word of God, statutes, testimony, laws, commandments. These are words used to describe the word of God. What we now have in the form of what we call the Bible, the biblical pattern is for us to impart to the next generation a God centered Bible saturated vision for all of life. John Piper put this really well. He said, if the next generation is going to be shaped into radically committed, you got to look. If you don't know Piper, he loves hyphenated words, radically committed, risk taking, countercultural, wise thinking, loving, mature world Christians. Then it's going to come through God's word. God's spirit is going to work in the next generation through God's word, plain and simple. And the goal is not to just teach them a bunch of disconnected, moralistic stories and principles. It's easy to teach the word and miss miss the point. When I say doctrine, teach doctrine, I'm talking about a set of beliefs, a set of instruction. Biblical doctrine helps us to understand who God is. What is God's will for our lives? What is the nature and character of God? What is the path to salvation? What is God's standard for holiness in our lives? Who are we? Why are we the way we are? You go to the New Testament. It's clear that when the church starts, that those leading the church, starting with the apostles and then and then elders after that, they were not just telling stories. They were teaching doctrine. And you see this right out of the gate. So Acts 2, OK, church is started in Acts 2. And what are they focused on? The apostles teaching. It's a set of doctrine. Paul warns Timothy against anything that doesn't accord with sound doctrine, which accords with the gospel. This is why we have things like creeds, confessions, catechisms. The church throughout history has seen the importance of, in a really good way, indoctrinating the church and the next generation. This is about teaching the whole counsel of God like Paul does in Acts 20. This may be the first time I've ever quoted another elder at length in a sermon or at all. But David Burnett sent me an email this week in preparation for this sermon. So, David, you may have never been quoted in a sermon, but here it is. So in the words of David Burnett, who I think nailed it, it's only part of what he said. I've become increasingly convinced in the past several years that the next generation needs to be catechized in the foundational doctrines of the faith. This is not a replacement for simply reading the stories of the Bible or for helping our kids see the coherence of the grand narrative of Scripture and how it centers in Christ. I still think those things are critical, along with Scripture, memory and singing. However, I think it's entirely possible to do all those things, even to teach people principles for studying the Bible. And yet they miss some of the most fundamental truths regarding who God is, the nature of sin, the person and work of Christ, the nature of discipleship and so on. So one component of the content of our training has to be doctrine. Now, second, and I'm going to seem like I'm contradicting myself after you may assume I've told you not to tell stories. The second component of the content of training is we don't just teach doctrine. We reinforce this as we impart stories. We impart stories. Psalm 78, verse four. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generations of what? The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and of the wonders that he has done. 
It's clear in both of these texts that storytelling is a big part of training the next generation. Psalm 145 verse 4 is really clear on this too. It says that one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I was not trying to say in my last point that we should go back to the rooms back there and among the toddlers we take the Jesus Storybook Bible and we burn it outside and we put Grudem Systematic in there. That, that was not the aim. My point is that apart from doctrine, the stories can miss the point. Stories can easily end up as just moralistic lessons. Don't do what the bad guy did. Do what the good guy did. God likes the good guy. Stories accompanied by doctrine help reinforce and illustrate the the character of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ. We most definitely have to tell our kids stories. Tell them about the wonderful things God has done. Praiseworthy things, powerful things, astounding things, things of wonder. Our kids should be awestruck at what God does. We should be awestruck at what God has done. I remember, I don't know, I've, I've confessed this before. I remember how helpful it was as a, as a parent and even as an adult uh, Christian being able to read the Jesus Storybook Bible with my kids over and over. Okay, you want a synopsis of the grand narrative of Scripture, there's a resource for you. Those stories just being connected all together. Bible doctrine and Bible stories and the Bible story, those are companions, not competitors. Those are companions, not competitors. One simply enhances and fills out the other. So we teach doctrine, we impart stories, and finally we give testimony. We give testimony. You keep going in Deuteronomy text. So we didn't read this part. But if you want to jump over and just scan verses 20 through 25, there we see the link of how the doctrines of the faith are, are that we see them connected with God's saving actions in our lives. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of all of this? I love that. When your son asks you what's going on, what's the meaning of all this? Then here's what you say to your son. And what does Moses recount? How the Lord saved his people out of slavery. How he brought them out of Egypt. You apply this to us and we are to give, we give personal testimony of how God has made a difference in our lives. Here's what God brought me out of. Here's what, here's the bondage he set me free from. We were slaves, but the Lord redeemed us. We don't just talk about beliefs and behaviors. We talk about experience. We talk about failures. We talk about successes. We talk about how the Lord worked through each. We talk about how the Lord forgave. We talk about how the Lord disciplined us, corrected us. Talk about how the Lord was faithful specifically to us. Certainly, we need to think about the age appropriateness of certain things, but we don't have to shield our kids from our failures because it's through those failures that they get a tangible picture of God's grace. God is pretty clear in these texts about what he wants the next generation to hear about the past generation. Tell tell the next generation that their ancestors died because they disobeyed me. But tell them how I was gracious to save. Tell them how gracious I am that they are getting to hear this and they're having this word passed on to them. God is not saying shield your kids from the failures of the past because it might scare them. I heard one pastor say, maybe this is a little too much, but he said, our kids didn't. He said, yes, our kids need to know that God is good. 
Our kids also need to know that God kills people. And what he was getting at is they need to know God's holiness. They need to know the ramifications of sin and rebellion against him and running from him and disobeying him. And we got plenty of stories to tell them. Like we don't have to shy away from that. Those things are a big deal. The fear of the Lord is a big deal in Scripture. So we teach doctrine, impart stories, give testimony, and we got to pick up the pace. Next section, the process for training, the process for training. So uh, so we got some content. Okay, we just talked about content. What do we do with the content? Okay. If we don't do anything with it, it's not any good. Has the Lord given any instruction on what to do with the content he's given us to teach? Short answer, yes, at least generally speaking. So I don't know about you. The Lord never, I, I get, I, it seems like the most memorable things that I say here are when I pick on things the Lord has never said. Like the Lord never commanded us to bless a meal. Okay, I said that, I think, in my first year here, and nobody has forgotten it. Just go back and listen. Like there was context to that uh, sermon. All right. That's not what I was picking on. But the Lord never told us to do vacation Bible school. The Lord never commanded us to have Sunday school. The Lord never commanded us to have RAs or GAs or the hundred other iterations of things that we have come up with to train the next generation. But he has given us some general principles which we have used to develop those avenues for training. So, again, three aspects here, three components of the process for training. First, we see formative instruction, formative instruction. Verse six, of the Deuteronomy text. You shall teach them, which the them here now has meaning. It's the statutes, the rules, the commands, the words, it's the doctrine, the stories, the testimony. You shall teach them diligently to your children. There's some formality to that right there in a sense. It's what Moses is doing in the context here with his audience. It's what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 78. They're teaching. They're imparting this to them. Do do what I'm doing to you, but do it to them. God doesn't specifically outline what it might look like. It's going to require some sort of medium, some sort of plan. For us in the church, at least in recent history, it's taking the form of something like Sunday school. Core training, RAs, GAs, you, you could probably think of a hundred different things you've heard about or seen where kids are being taught. There's a formal teaching going on. They're being catechized in the home. This is taken the form traditionally of something like family worship. There's some formal aspect of training of the next generation. And certainly there's an organic nature to this, which we'll get to in the next point. But there also is some level of intentionality. Relative to the church, this is why so much attention is given to the classes we have, to having equipped teachers, good curriculum, a long-term view and a process. It's why so much energy and time is invested into next generation training. Formative instruction is biblically necessary in the process of training the next generation. The medium may not be biblically prescribed, but formative instruction is necessary. You know, we come to kids, when it comes to kids, we think a lot about discipline, okay? Kids love it when we talk about discipline, right? So, but we tend to be a little one-sided in, in, in thinking about discipline. Spend a lot of time on one side of discipline, something might, we might call corrective discipline. But discipline is much bigger than corrective. In fact, you really should never do corrective discipline that is not Not first, that doesn't come on the heels of formative instruction or formative discipline. 
Otherwise, the corrective part doesn't make sense. Okay? If you're not teaching them something and setting a standard, then you're correcting them based on nothing and they don't understand it. Formative discipline, put it this way, formative discipline is foundational for corrective discipline. I think one of the worst assumptions that I have made and continue to make as a parent is that my kids fully understand what I want them to do. Okay? And therefore, when I go to correct them, I don't really get it why they don't, why they aren't really corrected. Because I'm assuming that they fully get what I understand. It's kind of a comical example, but I thought it was pretty good. I heard Ted Tripp tell a story about this. If you don't know Ted Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart, right? I think that's the book he wrote. But I heard he was talking about when he was younger being corrected by his dad and not in a bad way. But he was praying. Okay, His dad asked him to pray uh, at the meal. And he lived on a farm. He'd never really been off the farm at that time. And he, he started praying and he, he got through the prayer. And his dad's like, son, why were you praying for the corn missionaries? And uh, so so his dad had to unpack that with him. His dad had been modeling prayer to him, but his dad had been praying for the foreign missionaries. But Ted, never leaving a farm, had no idea, no concept of the word foreign. And he thought his dad was saying corn missionaries. And it made sense in his mind because his dad would always pray about them, you know, reaping some harvest, you know, on the mission field. And it made sense to him that many of the ones he prayed for were not reaping a harvest because in Ted's mind, there were nobody in the cornfields to hear about Jesus. So he's praying for the corn missionaries. So his dad's correcting him, but he had no basis for understanding what his dad was praying about or teaching him. Formative instruction is a key process of training. You can't correct what you haven't first formed. But another key aspect, another key aspect, everyday application, Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, and you shall, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, you shall talk of them when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Okay, you should talk of them, the statutes, the principles, the rules, the word of God, the, the doctrine, all of that. Okay, this does not mean that you take every occasion to preach a little moral sermonette on everything about uh, life. This this verse is pointing more to what we see modeled in Jesus, in his teaching style. Okay, that everything about God relates to, ev- the truth about God relates to everything in life. It's saying you, you don't have to do all of your teaching formally with the Bible open. Life provides intersections at every turn for you to connect your kids to truth. You might think about life as a tremendous illustration resource, a living visual aid to do teaching. Again, prominent in the way we saw we saw we see Jesus teach on the pages of the gospel. He's birds and trees and flowers and farming and animals and people and brokenness. The whole of life was his resource to draw on his lessons, connecting truth to life. The references here to sitting and walking and lying down and getting up, that, that's just referring to the routines of daily life. We're to impress truth about God on just concrete daily living. Tim Keller says this is a call to be wise and thoughtful about how the values and virtues of the gospel distinctly influence every decision and every priority and every area of life. I don't know about you, as I was preparing this, this is one of those moments where I, I start to feel the pressure of wasted moments. I'm like like feeling the guilt of, of wasted moments start to just land on me in preparation. So that, that may be you right here. But we, we need to reorient our thinking on this, okay? 
Not, not, not look in the past. We'll talk about that in a minute, looking at past failures. We don't need to do that. We just need to reorient our thinking that every car ride, every talk after school, after every game, every hike, every meal, all of these are opportunities. It's just a matter of figuring out how to use them. Again, it's not just, okay, I got a little, little opportunity for a moral sermonette here. But we, we use the canvas of life to paint a picture of truth for our kids. I've watched Nicole exemplify this with our kids for so many years. She just asked questions, just simple questions in the car, around the table, just drawing out our kids. I think she often does it to set me up with hard questions. Okay. Not sure about your household, but the hardest theological questions I get come from my dining table. They do not come from you. They don't come from my work and they've never come from anyone else. They come from my kids. I think Nicole enjoys lobbing the question up and watching dad squirm. Everyday application is a key part of the process of training. So formative instruction, everyday application, and finally, authentic exhibition. Modeling, exhibit to exhibit something, to model something. Authentic exhibition. You have to model what you believe and what you are teaching. I heard Matt Chandler say one time, and it's, it's so true, he said, Our kids have been provided military-grade radars to de- detect hypocrisy. Military-grade radars to detect hypocrisy in our lives. You want to find out how consistent or inconsistent you are in following Jesus, then have some kids. Teach them what it means to follow Jesus, and then try to live life in front of them, and they will promptly point out every inconsistency in your life. Hey, kids, by the way, I'll give you an example of this. It's not spiritual. Kids, ask your, your parents what the speed limit sign means. And then just report back to me on how the ride in the car goes. Okay, just lobbing that one out there for you. All right, we actually, um, all right, so we actually see this in the Deuteronomy text. It's a good bit wrapped up in verses 8 and 9, okay? But this language about binding these truths as a sign upon your hands and frontless between your eyes and writing them on the, on the doorpost, really misused by the Jews uh, to a certain extent. But part of the meaning has to do with there being visible evidence that you practice what you preach. There's visible evidence that you practice what you preach. Love for God is certainly internal, but it's also external and visible. Something, something as all-encompassing as your heart, soul, and might has to be visible to those around. You cannot love something with heart, soul, and might, all that you are, without it somehow being visible and leaking out to those around you. And particularly to the kids around you. I don't know about you, I, I think often about, what, what do my kids learn? Because I get to realize... I get confronted a lot of times with what my kids learn by my actions, my words, and my attitude. But I ask myself that question. What are they learning from me about money, about work, about family, about marriage, about sports, about the church, about God's word, about the value of other people, about grace, about forgiveness, about failure, about success? When they observe my life, what are they, what are they learning from that? Does my living reinforce my teaching? Does my life honor God's word? And I'm not like aiming at exhibiting perfectionism here. That would be impossible and deceptive if you really thought you were. Just keep in mind, they also need to learn humility and failure and forgiveness. So there's opportunity even in you not being perfect for them to learn something. So have you ever asked yourself these questions? This doesn't go just for parents. Every Christian in the room. 
what is the next generation learning from your life? What is the next generation in this church learning from your life, from observing your life? Authentic exhibition or modeling to simply to simplify it is another key aspect of the training process. All right. Need to land the plane here. So posture of trainers, content of training, process of training. Let's close looking at the purpose of training pretty quickly here. What's laid out here is not formulate. God's commands in Scripture are often not formulas. It's not do this and this will happen every time. Okay, we can be completely faithful when it comes to the next generation and they in the end not be. It's sobering to think about. It's ultimately on God to say our kids one day will, will make choices that are their own choices and those are not on us. You know, I, I like to say I'm not a Presbyterian in my view of kids. We don't baptize babies around here, but I do have what I'll call covenantal optimism, meaning I'm optimistic about kids that are born into believing homes and to healthy churches. I'm optimistic about kids born into believing homes and into healthy churches. It is hard, I think, impossible to be born with more access to the gospel than our kids have and so many other kids in churches have. And based on the track record of scripture and history, I'm optimistic about kids raised in faithfulness, faithfulness from both the church and parents. But there's nothing formulaic here. There is motivation to be gained by the purpose that's laid out for training that we see here. You might say this is the why behind the training. We do it ultimately for their good and for the glory of God. But there are whys under the ultimate why. Okay. There are other whys under the ultimate why. Three of them, real quick. First, one aspect of the purpose of training is they may gain knowledge of God. Psalm 78, verse 6, why do this? So that the next generation might know him. They might know God. They might know his word. They might know his statutes. They might know all of that. Deuteronomy 6, verse 2, that your son and your son's sons may fear the Lord. Now, don't gloss over how the grandkids get caught up in this. We train the next generation for the sake of the one that comes after that. Psalm 78, verse 6 talks about even children yet unborn, okay, that they may rise and tell them to their children. We have the opportunity to ensure that our kids and then our grandkids know God from our. Think about this. Don't miss this point. From our teaching comes their knowing. Think about that. We've we have the opportunity, the privilege to help kids to know God. And we don't need to just fly past. Oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. We, we have the opportunity to teach them about God. It's, it should astound us that anyone would come to know God as a result of our teaching. And God has teed up the next generation. He's teed up a bunch of kids that we have living with us and have to come with us and they're everywhere we go and we get to tell them about God. That's not a burden. That, that's awesome. We get to be the ones to impart the most important knowledge our kids will ever hear. The knowledge of God. We, we get to be the ones that do that. We have a shared, a unique responsibility in our homes and a shared responsibility. Number two, second aspect of the purpose of is that from this knowledge that they may gain hope in God. So second, why from the knowledge they may gain hope in God. Psalm 78, verse seven, so that they should set their hope in God. We train so that they have hope. 
so that they can have confidence, as some translations say, in who God is and what he's done. We have the privilege of training so our kids get the benefit of hope. Don't we want the next generation to have hope? Confidence in God, confidence in the future, in the outcome of things. That's what we get to participate in. We don't train for the sake of producing arrogant intellectuals one day. We train for the aim of producing hope-filled disciples. Last aspect of the purpose of training. Last point for the day. They get the knowledge of God. They get hope in God. And finally, we aim at obedience to God, that they would obey. You keep going in verse 7 of Psalm 78, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I forget the author, but someone said of this text, we have not succeeded in our God-given responsibility if our children's heads are full of true thoughts, but their behavior is contrary to God's commands. Confidence in God, hope in God that's rooted in knowledge of God must lead to obedience to God. As one pastor said, we teach so that the next generation will obey. That they will know and hope and trust and obey. He would go on to say, the desired outcome goes beyond just hoping our kids will stay out of trouble. We want them to be faithful and passionate followers. We impart knowledge for the sake of hope, and we aim at hope for the sake of obedience. All right, we are out of time. Time, time always prevails. So a lot more could be said, probably needs to be said. And, you know, I, I go through the sermon as many times as I can before I get up here. And I'm like, am I saying anything encouraging today? Because I get to the other side of this and I'm like, oh, I just feel like I'm not so encouraged. Anyone in, in here right now would be honest enough to say, I heard everything you said. I agree with it. I see it in the word. But honestly, I feel like a failure. Just feel guilt for all that's just said. Um, And I'm sure there's a spectrum in here. There's some of you maybe knocking it out of the park. And as long as you're not bragging about that, I'm glad you're knocking it out of the park. That's good. (laughs) Hopefully somebody in here is knocking it out of the park with with their kids. Um, But others probably think that you're, you're, you're failing. Or you failed in the past. You're looking back on the past. You think you failed. No matter where these truths find you, here, here would be my exhortation. Start right where you are. Here's a quote I found encouraging, trying to find something encouraging because I was focused more on my failures. It says, there is no need to look back in vain regrets over the past. Begin right now. Such is the grace of God. Such is the glory of his nature and his character as the God of the impossible that he can do wonders no matter when or where you begin. So if you are breathing at this moment, opportunity still exists to exert faithfulness in the next generation. It may or may not be the generation, next generation in your home, but opportunity exists for all of us in the church. I would say for those that maybe this landed a little heavy on, I think this, this meal is so fitting that it lands on today. It just offered such a great opportunity, uh, to, to end in the Lord's grace. Cause this is a time through this meal to be reminded of the Lord's love for you, even in your failures. So here's here's what may be true about you and about me. We're failures. But here's what's also true. The Lord loves us. The Lord loves us deeply. It's ten, it's, it, it, this meal reminds us like the Lord is not ignorant of our failures. He is sovereign. 
He knows, he's fully aware, yet Christ still died for us. He gave his life as a ransom for us, that he shed his blood to cleanse us. This is a moment to take those failures to him and come out on the other side, realizing you've been washed clean in the shed blood of Christ. That those failures are not some barrier to heaven. So I pray this will be a means of grace to you in that way. For those that find that found all of this encouraging and reinforcing and you're just seeing fruit among the next generation, this is a reminder that you give God credit for all of that. It's because Christ died for you. It's because you know that grace that you are diligently imparting that to the next generation. And it's an opportunity to look at this meal and say, thank you. This is all because of you. All right. With that, let me get those that are serving to make their way up. I think I heard the 12 o'clock bell, but we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. So uh, if you're serving, make your way up. If you are a guest with us, uh, we hope uh, that you felt welcome today. Um, if you can serve, make your way up. So I'm not sure if somebody got selected today, but we need four folks. Um, if you are a guest with us, um, again, I hope you feel welcome today. If you are unfamiliar with what we're about to do, this is something that Jesus gave us as a reminder of God's grace toward us in him. This is reserved for those that have put their trust in Jesus. If that describes you, if you're walking in repentance and faith, we invite you to partake in this. If that doesn't describe you, then we are grateful that you are here. We would love to talk more. Uh, we would just ask that you please let these elements pass by. We are not taking names, uh, but this is for a people that have been bought at a high price. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to distribute both of these and then I'll lead us to partake. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, that God just gives us instruction how you have taught us. And we're thankful for the privilege of being able to teach the next generation. But we are eternally grateful for the shed blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ that provided grace for us to be redeemed and rescued, for us to have a story to tell the next generation, to recount the wondrous works of our Father. So we're thankful for that. Help us in these moments. If we feel like failures, help us to rest in the finished work of Christ. If we're seeing fruit, help us to give all credit to Christ. So guide us in this moment. Let this meal be an extraordinary means of your grace toward your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.